it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 245. Andrew and I have four great listener questions that we're going to answer. So I will go ahead and get us rolling with the first one. So here we go. Hi, Dave and Andrew. I'm new to investing like many of your listeners and have almost fully caught up on the episodes for the past six months. I first wanted to say thank you for all the helpful information you've helped to take investing seriously. First, a short background of me for context. I'm 29 and started my Roth IRA within the last two years, contributing the max. 10% 401k contribution and have some money in an HSA no longer contributing. All of these I'm currently investing in index funds, but have yet to buy individual stocks. I have a fair amount in saving. Questions. Would it be smarter increasing slash maxing out my 401k contribution if I'm able before picking individual stocks due to the tax advantage? This leaves the current savings I have. Can you still make good returns with an index fund in a brokerage account, even though you don't have the tax advantages like a 401k? Thanks, Clay. So Andrew, what are your thoughts on Clay's really good question? So would it be smarter to increase or max 401k contribution before picking individual stocks? First off, Clay, I think it's awesome to hear your background. And I kind of see as you're killing it. You're maxing out different contributions, taking advantage of tax advantage accounts, and you should be proud of that. And welcome to the journey. For somebody who maybe is not all that familiar with 401ks versus some of the other accounts, one of the drawbacks to a 401k, if you consider it a drawback, is a lot of them don't allow you to pick individual stocks. And so the obvious benefit to a 401k is that it lets you grow your money tax deferred and uh, reduces your taxes today. So you kind of have to outweigh, you know, if you're somebody who wants to pick stocks, do you take the tax advantage or do you take the potential benefit of if you can beat the market and get higher returns that way? And the way I look at it purely from a net worth perspective, how to maximize your net worth, the taxes will probably outweigh the gains that you can get from the market. If you can beat the market by 1% a year over the long term, let's say you earn 11% instead of 10%, every year for the long term. That's really, really good. When you talk about paying taxes of 20, 25, 30%, it's going to take more than just an extra percent a year to overcome that. And so 
in my mind, if you're trying to maximize your net worth, you would want to maximize your tax savings before trying to do anything fancy or like picking your own stocks. I would agree with that assessment. I think, again, to, to echo what Andrew was saying, you know, congratulations, Clay. Welcome to the dance. Glad you decided to come in because the water's warm. I think one of the things that I guess I would consider is how much is your 401k match go up to? So in other words, how much can you contribute to max out your 401k and still get a match? Because that would have a bearing on that decision as well. Because as we've talked about before, that's free money. And that's 100% return that you can get on your money if you can get all of that match. So that would be something that would definitely be something to consider along with this. I guess the other part of it too really comes down to, I guess, what your preferences are. And you know, personal finance is personal. And I think the points that Andrew make are all great points and picking individual stocks can be a challenge and out, outperforming the market over a long period of time can be a challenge. And the other part of it is it takes time. There's time involved in doing research on companies and trying to figure out what it is that's going to work best for you and what kind of investment style you have. And there's a litany of different things you can go through. But I think the thing you have to consider is how much of that is worth it to me for my lifestyle? Do you have a family? Do you not have a family? Do you want to spend more time with your friends and family? And if you do, then some of that will be eaten up by investigating Berkshire Hathaway to see if that's worth an investment or not. And so I think those are all things that you probably want to consider because the one thing we none of us can get more of is time. And you have to decide what your time is worth. And if you can beat the market over a long period of time and you want to spend the time to do it, then I'm not going to stand in your way and tell you not to do it. But I think a great way to look at it would be what is your time worth? And if the 401k is going to get you where you want to go and you can do some stock picking on the side, but maybe that's not your necessary like main investment portion of it. Let's say you take I don't know, I'll just pick a number 4% of your portfolio and you want to play with some individual companies and stuff like that. By all means, knock yourself out. But if you don't want to spend the time to do 100% of that, then I would definitely consider using the 401k to its full advantage. And if you're in a position where you can max that out every year, that's a very, very, very good place to be. And you're going to get, you're going to grow your wealth very quickly. Uh, you're going to be shocked at how quickly that's going to compound. You know, not to mention you have other smart people that are managing that money for the 401k as well. So they're in it to win it too. So I think all those things could help you in the long run. But I guess if I was doing it, that's kind of how I would look at it. And you can pick stocks in the Roth IRA and you can pick stocks in an HSA. Well, depending on your HSA, but if you have an HSA with Fidelity, you can pick stocks inside there. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be either or. You could pick stocks in those tax advantage accounts and then max out your 401k for additional tax benefits rather than thinking, I got to put this in a individual brokerage account and pay taxes on it. Yeah, exactly. I think the last thing that I would probably suggest to Clay, if you're really going down this path and you're concerned about taxes and benefits, I would reach out to your tax professional and sit down and have a conversation with them and explain to them what you're trying to do. They'll have ways to help you take advantage of whatever tax advantages you could do and give you suggestions in that regard. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, 
I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. All right. So let's move on to the next question. So, hey, guys, love your podcast. I was hoping you could address a question for me about 529s on an upcoming episode. I have already maxed out 401k contributions and my HSA to get tax benefits in those areas. And I see 529s as another important place to be investing for my three kids, ages 7, 4, and 1. In your opinion, should I fully build up the 529 accounts for my kids before I contribute more to my brokerage account so I can get the tax-free growth benefit associated with 529s. Thanks, Brian. So Andrew, I know you've done a little research on 529s and I believe you have one as well. So maybe you could be the perfect person to answer this. Okay, sounds good. I'll step up to the plate then. (laughs) A 529, if you've never come across it, it's basically how Brian explained in the question. You can set money aside and invest it for your child. And when they go to college, they can access that. And while it's taxed, when you put the money in, it's you don't get a tax deduction for putting money in. But when you sell the investments or take the money out to pay for college, that money does not get taxed for making gains. So it, it does have that tax benefit and it can be beneficial. And like you said, I have one for my daughter. I'm referencing an article from Merrill, which is owned by Bank America. They're talking about... So this is one of the downsides to a 529 account. And so you might be surprised by my answer, Brian. But you kind of have to think about what happens if the 529 never gets used. 
So you mentioned having three kids. So maybe some of that gets mitigated because let's say kid number one, who's seven years old, for whatever reason, decides you know they don't want to do the college thing. Maybe they want to become an entrepreneur. Maybe they want to do a trade school, whatever it is. There are penalties for trying to access that money in a different way. So you know, you originally planned to pay for age seven's college. You can't do that anymore. One of the options you can do is you can roll it over to another kid. So maybe if the first kid doesn't go to college, maybe the chances are the second or the third will, so you can roll over to them without penalty. But if you go through all three kids and none of them go to college, or for whatever reason, all of the money that you saved in there doesn't get used, you get penalized in a couple different ways. So you would pay taxes on all of the earnings that you earned from those investments. Plus, they give you a 10% additional federal tax plus state and local taxes. So you basically lose all the benefit of the tax savings from the earnings. Plus, you're getting this additional 10% tax plus state taxes. So it's almost kind of risky to put too much money in a 529. And I think that maybe is a little controversial because the default idea is to always just max out, max out tax advantage accounts. But in this particular case with a 529, there does seem to be some risk there. They do have a couple exclusions. So for as an example, if your kid gets a scholarship, and so that's the reason why the money wasn't used for their college expenses, you can get some of that back without the 10% penalty, but you still pay taxes on the earnings. So it was almost as if it should have been in your brokerage account anyways, and you have a lot more flexibility with it. So I would kind of think of it a little more cautiously maybe than people might normally do. And just think, you know, I don't know if this is just my experience, but it seems to me that because college has gotten so expensive, people are thinking about alternatives to college and talking about it maybe a little bit more than they did when I went to school, for example. So there could be other reasons that are not necessarily in your windshield today that you're aware of that contribute to that money being not used for college and you having to pay all these taxes and fees on it eventually. So I would probably use it. I'm using it, obviously, but with caution that I don't want to put too much money into this because I would rather have the flexibility of just having that money myself and not having to use it for college expenses. So I would kind of think of it as a balancing act. That's great advice. I have nothing else to add. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I will move on to the next question then. Okay. So this is a three-parter. So this should be kind of fun. So hi, I'm definitely interested in dividend stocks investing. I'm approaching 50. I'm not completely new to investing, but definitely haven't traded myself. So far, I've only been putting my max amount each year in the 401k account through work. I have three main questions. Number one, I'd like to educate myself more on the dividend stocks investment. So are there any books that you might recommend to get started? Oh, that's a great question. I guess when I think about dividend investing, I don't think about it as a separate kind of investing. I think of it as part of investing. And so I think any great book that can help you learn more about the basics of investing I think would be amazing. I guess the books that really that we've always recommended to help people learn about investing and give you the the basics, things like the great books from Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street, 
fantastic book. Super easy to read. Very, very geared towards beginners. Another great book is the book from Manish Prabhai, The Dondo Investor. Very, very well written. Super easy to read. Uh, he gives great examples and they're easy to understand examples. Another great book is Common Stocks, Common Profits by Phil Fisher. That's a great book as well. And these are all very easy to read. They're not super technical. There's not lots of math and there's not lots of... It's more about theory and ideas and strategies and approaches as opposed to numbers. And I think those are great books to help kind of educate you to get started. Another great one is the Joel Greenblatt book. So you can be a stock market genius too. That's a fantastic book as well. I love his writing and I love his YouTube videos are great. And if you are really interested in this stuff, you could also go to our website, <laughs> shameless plug, einvestingforbeginners.com. Uh, Andrew is the drip king for a reason. And there's lots of articles on our site about dividends as well. So if you want to learn more about kind of the ins and outs of dividends themselves, the terminology and things like that, there's lots of great articles to help you about that. So uh, I guess that would be my first start. And I, I approach it the same way. I can't think of a book on the top of my head that is focus specifically on dividends. Like Dave said, it's dividends are just one way of companies giving back some of their earnings. It's really investing is investing and that's you have to learn about the principles of investing and you have to learn about how the business world works a little bit. And a lot of those books do that very, very well, particularly even if you're a beginner. So I'll double click on Peter Lynch's books because we've been doing this for so long that it's hard to sometimes place yourself in the mind of a beginner. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you for a fact, as an absolute beginner, I read Beating the Street by Peter Lynch, knowing nothing about the stock market. And that gave me enough to move me on to the next book and be able to understand more and more and more. So that's why I highly recommend Peter Lynch's book. Mm-hmm. I think Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits with Phil Fisher is good for you to read in particular if you're into dividends because he talks a lot about the downside to dividends and why you should think about where companies can maybe pay too much in dividends. So you always want to kind of invert the idea, right? Give me the good, give me the risk. And I think reading that book would help a lot. And richer, wiser, happier with oh, yeah. William Green. Yeah. William Green that yeah. we had on the I show before. Yeah. I would love to actually to get feedback on people if they were like really, really beginner and found that book easy to read. Because mm-hmm. I found it super easy to read, but I've also yeah. been reading investing books for years. Right. But I just got the sense that it was like an easy book to read. So I would love to hear if you guys feel the same way. But I mean, starting with probably any of those, particularly the ones that we highlighted that are good for beginners, I think mm-hmm. is a perfect place to get started. Yeah. Quick on the Monish Prabhai. That was actually the first book I read. It was perfect. It was super easy to read and I really understood it. And then after that, I read The Richest Man in Babylon. And then after that, I did The Intelligent Investor. So I think all three of those books gave me a great foundation to really start understanding kind of how to save money, how stock market works and you know investing in general. So I think any of those books, you're not going to go wrong. I mean, I remember the first chapter of Manisha's book. Mm-hmm. It's like, it just sucks you right in and you're like, oh, wow. How come I never thought of it this way? Right, it's, exactly. It's entertaining too. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah, I love it. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. All right, so let's move on to the second part of this question. So we got, uh, I really enjoyed the episode from Ferdy from DivGrow. I checked out his website and portfolio. How can you tell how much dividend you've been getting so far so that he can provide info on how much he's getting each month? Somehow thought the dividend is given out each quarter year. Is there an easy way to track? So what are your thoughts on part of the question? This is an interesting 
Yeah, I mean, I'll just say the way I do it personally because I'm updating my spreadsheet as I release that to subscribers of the eLeather every month. So I just I pull up the brokerage account, look at the activity, and I can see which dividends came in for the month. And then you can plug those into a spreadsheet. That's one way to track. I also use nasdaq.com. And so they have a dividend history thing. So I really just, like if I'm looking at Microsoft, I'll go Microsoft dividend history in Google and then look for the NASDAQ page. And they will show you every dividend that they've posted recently. So by doing it both ways, you can see how much dividends did I earn and then how much dividends has these companies given on a per share basis. And so the NASDAQ one's really nice because it tells you when, what was the date for when they said they're going to pay a dividend, the dividend announcement. What was the date you had to have the stock owned by to get the dividend, ex-dividend date? And then when are you getting the dividend, the dividend paid date? And it has it just all out in a nice table. That's what I do when I'm updating the spreadsheet every month. I use those resources. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I remember looking at my brokerage report when I was filing taxes and it showed at the end of the year how many dividends I had received for each company. So again, oh, nice. they had it on the page. They had a page where you could kind of see how much you invested in each particular investment and then what kind of dividends you received for the year for that because that's what they were going to tax you on or could tax you on. And so that's kind of the way that I look at it. I don't follow it as closely as Andrew does, but that was the way that I looked at it. I think we should recommend people track their dividends more, especially mm-hmm. at a time when the market's down yeah. because you might feel like you're not making progress. Mm-hmm. But if you see how your dividends, I mean, they're going to grow pretty much every year, the amount right. that you receive, especially if you keep putting more money into the market. Mm-hmm. It's super, super motivating to see how your income stream grows. I mean, that's the name of the game in my book. Yeah, it is. I guess the other benefit or perk, if you will, is if the stock price is down and it's reinvesting, it's going to reinvest at a lower price point, if you will, which means that when the stock recovers, and it will, that you're going to get a bigger benefit from that farther down the road. So that's another thing that I think you can kind of keep in mind. And, you know, it is hard when you see everything is in red and, you know, you look at a company, it's 42% down for the year, but then you see that, you know, hey, you know, I'm getting a 2% return on this dividend. So I am moving the ball in the right direction. It just will take a little longer than you want. (laughs) (laughs) Good way to put it. All right. So let's look at the last part of this question. So we have uh, relating to the prior question, when should I aim to start taking out the dividends instead of reinvesting? My goal is to have dividend income that I can live off of, maybe not 100% on it, but comfortably. So thanks. All right. So that's a great ending question. So how do we want to tackle this one? I'd be curious to hear what you have to say. Because I'm the older one in the room? (laughs) No, just because I'm curious. (laughs) Okay. So this is where personal finance becomes personal. So I don't know that there's any book correct, air quote, right way to do it. The standard is, you know, use 4% of your portfolio and that allows you to reinvest and continue to maintain a certain level. And depending on how you're taking out that 4%, whether it's dividends or whether it's liquidating portions of your portfolio, that's how... I guess the traditional way has been to do it. And I think that's probably not a bad way to go. But again, it's going to be really hard to determine where that is for each individual person because 
what you are comfortable living off of may be different than Andrew and I. And it may be different, you know, from my fiance and it may be different from my neighbor. So it's all going to be a little bit different. So it's hard to give a hard, fast rule. So something that I guess I wanted to throw out there, and this is maybe something we could get some feedback on too, is when I was working at Wells Fargo, we had a, this was for employees as part of our 401k, they had this wealth portfolio tracker, which is kind of comical, but that's a whole other discussion. But what they would do is they would be able to, based on your 401k contributions, any money that you had and your potential social security benefits, they would kind of calculate how much you could have when you retired. And then they would also determine if you could use sliding scales. And so if you had 4%, you wanted to you know, live off of or 5% or 2% or however you wanted to do it, they had sliding scales and it would tell you how much money that would be. And that was a cool thing. But frankly, I haven't seen anything out like that out there in the wild. And I'm curious if Andrew or anybody else, you know, any of our listeners have some suggestions about this and we would be more than happy to follow up with everybody if we learn some information about this. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about. I don't have a hard and fast rule. My plan right now is my head is down trying to get to the finish line. So I really honestly haven't thought a whole lot about after that. And my goal is to try to maximize everything I can to that point. And as I get closer, then I will probably start looking at that. But 4% is probably a good place to start. And then you can kind of adjust from there. But I think each person is going to be individual. And Ferdy actually would be a great person to reach out to. He's a little farther on the towards the retirement curve. And so he would be a great resource to reach out to. You could find his email on his website and you could send him an email and ask him this very question as well. I would be curious to hear if somebody's familiar with a tool like that because I haven't been exposed to one, but I can't imagine it'd be that hard to come up with something, some sort of calculator to show, hey, I got this much, I got this, this is how much I want to save for retirement, blah, 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 and, and come out with a number for that. I'll give just like two ideas. And if you find one of these ideas useful, then cool. The average stock market return over the very long term term, so I'm talking about going back over 100 years, is around 10% a year. And somewhere between 6 to 7% of that is from the stock price. Around 3 to 4% of that is from dividends that are reinvested. So when you reinvest a dividend, you are exposed to more of the stock price gain because you've compounded how much you own. So if you're happy, let's say, maybe you're at a point in your savings where you're like, hey, I'd be happy to just earn five, six, seven percent on this amount from here on, and I don't need 10% anymore. Well, maybe that's one way to look at it. Another way is maybe now that like I'm about to say it, I almost like want to stop myself because this could be a terrible idea. But like maybe if you feel like the market is more expensive, maybe you're more willing to take the dividends out versus if the market's obviously really cheap, maybe you're just like, I'm going to hang on a little longer and really reinvest those because this is a great time to reinvest your dividends and pick up more shares of stocks. That could be a couple other ways to look at it too. And I think everything Dave said was on the ball right there. Like really is going to depend on your own personal financial situation and what you're comfortable with. And it's good to think about as long as you kind of have your expectations in place, then you probably can't go wrong. That's all good advice. All of these questions are excellent questions. And uh, you really stretched us and made us think. So thank you for sending those. And again, we'll put it back to our listeners. If anybody out there knows of any sort of website or calculator that we're not aware of that can help 
answer this question, please, by all means, pass it on to us and then we'll share it with our listenership so we can all benefit from that. All right. So let's move on to the last question. I listen to your podcast and visit your online archives now and then. Frequently return to Warren Buffett, but seem to refrain from offering us your assessment of Berkshire Hathaway A and B class. Why is this? So Andrew, this is a fun one. So what are your thoughts on this question about Berkshire? Yeah, well, thanks for listening to our podcast now and then. I would direct you first to episode 224, IFB 224. We talked briefly about Berkshire Hathaway and how Dave and I personally invest in them. I selected this question. I thought it was kind of a good opportunity to talk about sort of like the, I don't know if you call it like a sliding scale or like investable risk return reward curve. But I think as a beginner, it's important to understand that risk and reward are kind of tied. And so I guess to summarize IFB 224, Dave has a significant ownership in Berkshire. I have just only one share. And so it speaks to like a difference in our investing philosophy in a way. I think it's important if you're just starting to invest to understand how risk and reward can work in investing. So on one end of the spectrum, you have a bank account, right? Where the risk of you losing that money is zero because it's insured. But the return you get is basically limited to whatever short-term interest rates are. So that's been going higher because of the Fed, blah, 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 blah. But your return is limited to that. And then on the other side, in Shark Tank, where you're like a Shark Tank angel investor investing in startups, where the risk is super high, and we all know how many startups fail, and the risk is super high, but you could invest in Facebook and have one investment make you into a billionaire or something like that. So those are like the two extremes of investing risk and return. And so when we talk about, Dave always calls me the drip king, why I sit on that spectrum is because to me, I'm comfortable with where that risk return balance is. So I almost look at it like you have the bank account and then you have, there's other things along the way. You have bonds, you have dividend stocks, and then you have non-dividend paying stocks and then gross stocks. And so it kind of goes along that spectrum. So I almost see it as I love Berkshire. I love Buffett. Obviously, I follow everything he teaches. I have not invested significantly in Berkshire because my philosophy is to only invest in dividend paying stocks, which puts me at a lower potential return, but also a lower potential risk. And that's where I have found that that's kind of my circle of competence. Yeah, that's perfect. And I think that's a great illustration of it. And the risk return idea is not something that we've explored a lot in the past and probably something we should discuss more going forward. But I think that's a perfect illustration of you have to think about what kind of investor you are and what you're comfortable with. And just because everybody and a brother is out buying Peloton doesn't mean you needed to go out and buy Peloton. And I think it really comes down to what you're comfortable investing in. And for me, Andrew and I were talking before the show a little bit about this. And, you know, I think I fit more into the, you know, a little higher risk, but also a little higher reward spectrum than he does. And that doesn't mean that I'm better than him or that he's better than me. It just means that that's what we're comfortable with. And I guess, you know, to loosely, loosely align ourselves with this idea is, you know, Andrew probably fits more with really what Warren tries to do, where I probably look a little bit more Charlie tries to do. But it really comes down to, you know, shades of what you're comfortable with doing. 
And for me, owning Berkshire is I'm giving Warren Buffett my money to manage for me. That's the way I look at it. And I'd be hard pressed to think of somebody else that could manage my money better than he can. And so by giving him my hard-earned money to grow the value of Berkshire Hathaway is a great trade-off. If they paid a dividend, I think Andrew probably would be more on board with investing in Berkshire just because of the nature of the business and everything. I think that really it's a good illustration of the idea of the risk of return. And I think when you're thinking about these kinds of companies, you have to look at what you're comfortable investing in. And I'm comfortable investing in Berkshire and I'm comfortable investing in some of the payments companies that I've invested in, like Gajan and PayPal and Fiserv. And will they all be winners? Maybe not. You know, I don't know. I certainly hope so. And I believe so, but they may not be. And that's okay. That's part of the game. And I think you just have to learn what you're comfortable with. And if you're not comfortable investing in you know, these really exciting tech growth companies, then don't, you know, it's perfectly okay to invest in Berkshire Hathaway. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with investing in Johnson & Johnson or AbV or Bristol Myers or, you know, any of these companies, you know, there's a million different ways to make money in the stock market. You just have to figure out what you're comfortable with and try to stick to that. And if you start playing the game of bouncing back and forth between different styles and different strategies and all that kind of stuff, you're going to lose your way. And I think it's better to kind of figure out what's important to you and then stick with it. And over the long term, you're going to do great. And it's just a matter of being disciplined, being uh, consistent and sticking to your plan. So I think those are kind of the ways. Now, we don't refrain from talking about Berkshire Hathaway. As a matter of fact, it probably will be a bird's eye view and probably the near term, if you will. So we can give you kind of our assessment of the company from the master himself. But it really comes down to our risk reward profiles and why we choose to invest the way we do. And I think that's really what you got to think about. All right. So with that, then we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for this evening. I want to thank everybody for sending us the fantastic questions. Please keep them coming. I can't stress enough how great these questions are and how advanced everything is that you guys, these are not beginner questions. These are very high level advanced questions. So please keep them coming. And we appreciate you guys taking the time to send us these. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest in a margin of safety emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.